Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Good. Yeah, yeah okay, that's fine. Whatever. All right, so uh, we'll get back to that passage in Deuteronomy in a little bit. Uh, we are uh, in week two of our introduction to the book of Genesis. I said last week we were going to spend three whole weeks talking about the background of this important book before we actually dive into the text. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about where Genesis falls in the Bible. It's the first book of the Bible, and it's serving a function in the front of the Bible. This week, we're going to ask some questions about how Genesis came to be. And then next week, we're going to talk about Genesis as an ancient document and what it is, how it functions that way. Um, it's going to be, to fair warning, it's going to be a little technical this morning. We're going to ask some hard questions about this book, and there's some kind of challenging answers. Um, so we're throwing up the Q&R number. If you have any questions, if you think of questions during the service, you can anonymously text them to that number, and I'll try to engage with them a little bit towards the end. Um, but we're going to ask three questions this morning. We're going to ask, who wrote Genesis? We're going to ask, when was it written, and then why was it written? Who wrote it, when was it written, and why was it written? And it would be really easy as as a conservative, Bible-believing Christian to offer really simple answers. This could take like two minutes. I could say, this is who wrote it, this is when it was written, and this is why. But we're going to take these questions seriously this morning. For a couple reasons, because there are Christians, there are, there are men and women that believe in Jesus, that trust in Jesus for their salvation, that think differently than some of the Christians in our tribe. And then also, we're going to take these questions seriously because many of you will run into different answers to these questions as you study God's word. Some of you are in college or you will be going to college and you will have classes, maybe an anthropology class or a Bible as literature class, and you will run into the idea that there are a variety of ways to answer these questions. And it kills me that so many young people go off to school and they hear different answers than their pastor and their church leaders taught them growing up, and they just throw out their entire faith because they've been completely shipwrecked by this idea that different people disagree about these things. So I don't want to do that. I want to engage with these questions seriously so that we are prepared to handle the world that we live in. So the first question, who wrote Genesis, it's kind of a toss-up because it's anonymous. If you read through Genesis, the first verse isn't, hi, my name is Moses. Here's a story about how the world began. It doesn't say that. Genesis is technically an anonymous book, but it is part of what we call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Nobody directly claims to have written it, but we have some ideas about why we think Moses wrote the Pentateuch. In Scripture, we read that Moses wrote some stuff down. Exodus 24 says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. So in Exodus, the second book, Moses is writing some stuff down. 
We see in Numbers, the fourth book, at the Lord's command, Moses wrote down the starting points for the stages of their journey. These are the stages listed by their starting points. And so in Numbers, Moses writes some stuff down. In Ezra, which was written many years later, we read, they also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. So generations after this book was written, the Jewish people attribute it to Moses. Another um, reason why I think Moses wrote Genesis is Jesus seems to think Moses wrote Genesis. John 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? A little later, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts says, To this very day I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. So historically, throughout the history of the church, we have looked at passages like this. We have looked at Jewish tradition and said, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So Moses wrote Genesis. But there's problems. There's things that crop up. In Deuteronomy 34, we read, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. I'm guessing Moses didn't write that. Just a hunch. But if Moses has died, he probably didn't write that. In Genesis chapter 11, which we'll get to before Christmas, It says, Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. The Chaldeans as a people group didn't exist, we know from history, until about 1000 BC. So if Moses wrote Genesis 11.28, he is writing about the Chaldeans about 500 years before they exist. So that's a little bit of a question mark. In Genesis 14, we read, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is a city in northern Israel. But Dan is a city in northern Israel that isn't conquered and named Dan until Judges chapter 18, which is a couple hundred years after Moses lived. So what are we supposed to make of that? Well, about 1883, some Bible scholars in Germany came up with this thing called the Documentary Hypothesis. Uh, It's also called JEDP. And it basically says that there's a group of people that wrote the Pentateuch. And they can be broken up into four categories. I've got them up on the screen. There's the the Yahwist, which is J. That's because it's a German theory, so they say Yahwist. The Elohim, the Deuteronomist, and the Priestly. So they would say the Yahwist, whenever you see the word Yahweh as the name of God, that's the Yahwist writing. Whenever you see the word Elohim for the name of God, that's the Elohim author. The Deuteronomist, he just wrote Deuteronomy because that's a different sort of book. And then the Priestly author, he wrote Leviticus and some parts of Genesis and some parts of Exodus and some parts of Numbers. And for a long time, this has been the theory of how the first five books of the Bible were put together in professional scholarship. Because we see these things in the text that just 
They're a little weird. However, in recent years, the documentary hypothesis has started to fall out of favor. Scholars, ironically, not as they study the Bible more, but as they study other ancient books more, they realize the writing style of other ancient literature is very similar to the Bible, and the other authors do very similar things. They have multiple names for God, and they switch back and forth for different reasons. And we're also learning more and more about how unified the five books of Moses actually are. And so even though this, is, this theory has been popular for a long time, scholarship, even non-Christian scholarship, is starting to go, well, it doesn't quite make as much sense as we thought it did back in the 1800s. But you will still, especially if you, if you take a college class on biblical history, you will hear that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy were written by a whole bunch of different authors over a lot of different time periods. Actually, I, I, I saw a YouTube video this week that was making that case. But that doesn't have to be the case. We can look at this book... And we can, as Christians, say, okay, Jesus thought that Moses is responsible for this book. The apostles thought that Moses is responsible for this book. The the whole Jewish faith is built on this idea that Moses is responsible for this book. So what's going on here? I think we can still say Moses mostly wrote this book. There are little editorial comments here and there, that whole Dan thing, it's probably somebody later on going, you know what, nobody knows where this city is because it's called Dan now, and we're going to just make a note that it's, that it's Dan. Nobody really knows who this group of people are, but we call them the Chaldeans now, so we're going to write in that. And the thing is, like, that's okay. God can inspire the work of editing over the centuries too. But that doesn't mean that we throw out the idea that Moses is responsible for the book. Uh, Bible scholar Tremper Lawnman writes, it seems best to affirm Moses' central role in the production of Genesis while ultimately affirming its composite nature. So over a period of time, this book, these five books that were originally written by Moses for this the people of Israel who had come out of Egypt gets passed down by the scribes of Israel and little notes are made to make it clearer to the audience that is using it. Just like we have modern Bible translations that change words a little bit. Like if you read the King James and you're like, I don't know what that word means because they it was, it was really popular in 1611, but now it doesn't mean what it used to mean. And so modern Bible translations will change those words so that modern people can understand them. And that's what I think we see in Genesis. We see a book that was written by Moses, but was shaped over several centuries to fit the context of the people of Israel. But here's the thing, though. If no matter where we land on this, there's a a few things that I think are important. I think Moses has to have something to do with the first five books of the Bible because Jesus says he does. I think that's really important as a Christian. But the details, remember a few weeks ago we talked about things that we should die for and things that we should divide for, things that we should debate for and things that we should decide for. 
this really, I don't think, is an issue that we should die for. There are, there are Christian scholars, there are Christian um, men and women throughout history and today that have a variety of views on exactly how this book was put together. But I think that's okay. As long as we're clear that, like, well, Jesus seemed to think Moses wrote it, so at least Moses has something to do with it. So the second question, when was it written? This is a surprisingly complicated question. If Moses wrote Genesis, when he wrote Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, he wrote it at the time after the Exodus. Remember, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are imprisoned in Egypt. They're slaves. And Moses comes and he delivers them from slavery by the power of God, takes them out into the wilderness, and develops their their relationship with God and works towards bringing them into the promised land. So a good question is, okay, when did that happen? And this is, this is hotly debated. So I want, to, I want to show you a timeline. I know it's kind of small if you're in the back. That, um, this, is, this is the history of Egypt. That red box is what's called the New Kingdom. The yellow box is what's called the Middle Kingdom. And those are time periods where there is a dynasty of pharaohs on the throne. Those gray spots are when there's like civil war and turmoil and chaos. And so there's all these periods of craziness in Egypt, and then there's these periods of stability. And there's some dates, 1250 BC, 1450 BC, and 1650 BC, and we'll talk about what those are. So some scholars will read Exodus 1.11, which says, so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. So if so they say, okay, Ramses is a city made by a pharaoh named Ramses. Ramses II. He was a great pharaoh. And he lived, if you throw up the timeline again, he lived in the New Kingdom. And so these scholars would say the Exodus happened in 1250 BC. And these scholars, because of this, would say there is no evidence that anything in the Bible is true. The, the, the time period of Ramses was hugely prosperous for Egypt. There's no evidence of, of uh, Jewish people living there. There's no evidence of plagues and disasters. There's no evidence of Moses or anybody like that. So the Bible is a myth. Now, there's other scholars that will read a, a verse in 1 Kings that says, Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month. That date, because we know when Solomon reigned, that date is 1450 BC. And jump back to the timeline, if you can. There we go. 1450 BC is in the middle of one of those crazy periods. And so then these scholars, they think, well, maybe it's because all this upheaval in Egypt, maybe that has to do with the Israelites. But there's really not a lot of evidence of the Exodus there either. And so most scholars they just kind of shake their heads. Like, I don't know. If it's 1250, 
We don't really know when it happened. If it's 1450, we really don't know when it happened. These scholars would say, well, scholars that believe Exodus is true would say, well, we just haven't found the evidence yet. But there's this really interesting thing that happens in 1650 BC. If we go farther back into the Middle Kingdom, there's all this stuff that happens. There's, there's letters that we've found written, written about plagues and natural disasters and crops dying. And there's all of these, um, what they call Semitic people, people from Palestine that live in Egypt. And they, they dug up this house, this beautiful house that's built like the uh, Jewish people would build their houses. And in the courtyard of this house, there's this tomb that's shaped like a tiny pyramid. And in this tomb, there is a statue. And the statue of the guy is a Jewish-looking man, and he's wearing a coat of many colors. There's just all this stuff that builds and builds and builds that sounds a lot like the end of Genesis and a lot like the book of Exodus. But it's 200 years too early in 1650. And so there's this rising movement of scholarship led by a guy named John Bimson and David Roll. David Roll is not a Christian. He is an agnostic. But what he has come to decide is that we have our timeline all wrong. And if you look at the, the two timelines again, Roll says that this whole period here, I'm going to go way back here, this whole period here of civil war and chaos, we're dating it wrong. It should be much shorter. And when you move the timeline, 1450 BC ends right at the end of the Middle Kingdom. And all of the events of the Exodus that cause major political upheaval in Egypt and completely destroy their civilization. Remember, in Exodus, the entire military is destroyed and drowned in the Red Sea. The pharaoh is destroyed. Everything just kind of falls into place there. There's a really neat documentary called Patterns of Evidence that goes over this. Um, You can find it on Amazon. I watched it this week. But I think... It's really compelling. I think it's really interesting that there's tons of evidence for the Exodus at the end of the Middle Kingdom, and there's a lot of problems with the way we date ancient history. So when was Genesis written? I would say about 1450 BC. But again, I'm not a historian. I'm not a scholar. I just read stuff and try to figure it out. And there are, there are some... Christians who think that the late date makes more sense. There are some Christians that think the early date makes more sense. There are some Christians that don't like this whole shifting the timeline thing around. I think it's really interesting and compelling. But it's not really something that I think we should divide over. Last question. When was Genesis written? Trevor Longman says, the book of Genesis is not properly understood unless it is seen as the first chapter of a five-chapter work we refer to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. While it may have been written using earlier sources, it was not written at the time of the events it describes, but rather at the earliest in the period after the Exodus, and was written very much as a prehistory providing the basis of the story of Exodus and wilderness wandering that followed. 
This is going to be really important as we get into this book. Genesis was written for the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt. For hundreds of years, these men and women had lost their identity. They had been slaves in a strange land. They had worshipped false gods. The Egyptians had hundreds and hundreds of gods. And they had lost sight of who their God was. If you read the book of Exodus, Moses is like, okay, God, when I go and tell the people of Israel that I've come to save them, who should I say you are? There's, there's all these gods. They don't know you from anyone else. And so the first five books of the Bible were written to reintroduce the people of Israel to their God. If you remember, if you've seen the, the movie The Planet of the Apes, this is spoilers, um, <laughs> at the end of Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston, what does he see? Does anybody know? Statue of Liberty. Because he thought he was on this weird alien planet run by apes, but really he was on Earth the whole time. But the humans had been subjugated by the apes for so long They'd forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten their history. They'd forgotten their culture. And in a very real sense, the people of Israel are like this. They've been subjugated by the Egyptians. They've been immersed in Egyptian culture. They've been, if they haven't been worshiping Egyptian gods, they've been surrounded by Egyptian gods for 400 years. And Genesis is, is, is there to, for Moses to say, no, 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 this is what God is really like. He's not like the Egyptian gods. He's like this. And so we're going to see some, some, similar, some similarities in Genesis between Egypt and Israel. But then we're also going to see some differences. And there are very important differences that we're going to key in on as we go. Tremper Logman also says, one of the biggest mistakes we can make in interpretation is to read it as if we, it were written for us today. This is really important because every generation asks questions about life, asks questions about culture, and they're not always the same questions. We need to know really clearly what are the kinds of questions that ancient people are asking before we can figure out what sort of answers the book of Genesis is giving us. Because as a as someone who believes in the authority of Scripture, I believe that the book of Genesis is true. I believe that what it writes down is factual. But we have to ask questions, like what is, what is it intending to write down? C. John Collins says, in order to talk about truth and falsehood, we have to be able to discern what sorts of things the authors are actually affirming. And to do this, we must exercise care to be sure we hear what they are saying and that we do not hear what they are not saying on their own terms. So we need to get into the heads as best as we can of Moses and the ancient Israelites. I had this weird... I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of memories of, uh, of my youth at least compared to my wife. She's constantly talking about stories that happened when she was young, and, and I, I feel like I have huge gaps. My, my mind doesn't care about that kind of information, and it just flushes it away. But I had uh, this memory this week of this um, youth group I attended with my friend, Mike. 
And my friend Mike was a really, really personal guy. He was really, he was really bubbly. He was kind of life of the party. And I am not that way. I am scared to death of social interaction. And so we were probably 13 or 14, and we went to this youth group together, and I knew he was going to immediately make like 40 friends, and I was going to be sitting in the corner by myself, and it was going to be awful. But they set up a game of Pictionary. And I don't know if you know this, or if you've, you've experienced this, if you're playing Pictionary, or Taboo, or Charades, with a really good friend, or a close family member, like you're unstoppable. So me and Mike were on a team, we were playing Pictionary, and he'd like draw a line, and I'd go, chicken, and, and we'd, yes, that's what it is, and then he'd just draw a circle, and I'd know, oh, that's a clock, or whatever, and because we were so in sync, we knew each other so well, because we were in each other's heads, and that's what we need to attempt to do as we read through Genesis. When, when Moses writes and he uses metaphors and word pictures and, um, and uses certain words over and over again and develops patterns, we need to begin to understand, okay, what is he doing? And we go wrong, I think, and we're going to talk about this more as we talk about creation and, and, and different things. We go wrong when we assume things from our perspective before we ask the question, what does it look like from their perspective? So we're going to dive in. One more week of background. We're going to talk about other ancient Israel, uh, other ancient literature and how it compares to Genesis. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And then we're going to dive into the book. So who wrote Genesis? I think Moses wrote Genesis. I think some people might have made some small edits here and there, but I think overall Moses wrote Genesis. When was it written? I think it was written when Solomon says it was written in about 1450 BC. And why? Well, because Moses is intending to show a vision of who God is to the ancient Israelites in a way that they had forgotten about because of their slavery in Egypt. We're going we're gonna to worship. We're going we're gonna to take communion. Back to that Deuteronomy passage that Sarah read. Deuteronomy 18, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. One of Moses' roles as the deliverer of God's people was to reintroduce them to God, was to be this mediator and show them who God was, show them who God is like. And this this prophet that God says he will raise up in Deuteronomy 18, that's Jesus. Jesus comes much later, but he's the one that Moses says is on the way. And one of Jesus' roles is to reintroduce God's people to what God is like, to reveal God in a greater way. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
Next week, we're going to talk about other ancient peoples and what they thought God was like. And it becomes very evident that the God that we find in Scripture is very different than that. And I hope you recognize that the God we find in Christ is very different from what we often think God is like. We often think that God is angry. We often think that God just... We, we, don't, we don't live up to his expectations and he's mad at us and we have to try harder and do more and, and he's hard to figure out. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you want to know anything about God, you just look at me. He says, in another place, he says, I and the Father are one. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take, your, take my yoke, learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And as followers of Jesus this morning, we can claim that promise. Whether you've been, um, you've had a great week or a rough week, whatever you're struggling with on the inside, whatever relational challenges you're dealing with, whatever questions you have about how to navigate your world, Jesus says, come to me. And that's one of the things we remind ourselves of when we take communion. Jesus, he goes to the cross. He sacrifices himself. Again, this is what God is like. He sacrifices himself for sin. And he adopts us into his family simply by trusting him through faith. And as we take the bread and the cup and remind ourselves of what our God is like, that he's pursued us, that he's come after us, that he died to save us. We need that. We haven't been enslaved by Egyptians for 400 years, but I think all it takes is about 20 minutes during the week to get your mind completely off of who God is. Our culture pours into us this idea of how to live and what values to hold that is so broken but it's so tempting. And part of this practice of communion is just to reorient our hearts around, no, this is what God is like. God loves me so much that he died for me. And I hope, I hope you believe that this morning. I, I don't know everyone here. Maybe, maybe not all of us are Christians. Maybe not all of us would say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. I have pledged my allegiance to Christ. But if that's you this morning, God loves you. God died for you. Jesus rose from the dead to give you new life. And that doesn't make all your problems go away. That doesn't make, you know, that doesn't make you rich like some would teach. But it's the way the universe is supposed to work. And it's the right way to orient yourself to the rest of the world. Moses freed God's people from bondage in Egypt, but Jesus frees us all from bondage to sin and death and shows us the love of Christ. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.